0: back to Walking Away from Arcadia. This is Simon, and Victor is here. And today, we are going to talk about The Shining Host, the LARP version. And we've both sat down and read most of the two Shining Host books, The Shining Host and The Shining Host Player's Guide. And we thought this would be useful, especially with the upcoming new Changeling LARP from Mind's Eye Theater to kind of
1: contextualize where we're coming from and where we're going. So full disclosure, I played a couple Changeling LARP games back in the day, but I never played Shining Host. The guy who was running that LARP was using the generation of rules that Shining Host is based off of. He ran other games in that era, so Laws of the Night, etc. cetera. But he really, really wanted to run Changeling and Shining Host wasn't out yet. So he developed an entire LARP version of Changeling that used the core character creation system because he was able to just pluck that out of the Vampire LARP and the same building process. And then he built all the Changeling stuff himself. Shining Host dropped a week after our first game. So that was kind of weird and awkward. He didn't know it was coming out when he did all this work. So I played something that was similar-ish to Shining Host. When I got it and looked through it, I went, oh, actually, this is not that far off. A couple things were different. So that's where I'm coming from in terms of my history. So not exactly being familiar, but kind of familiar adjacent. When I read through these two books, I was actually, for the most part, especially in the main Shining Host book, kind of pleasantly surprised. They did a lot with very little word count. Yeah, I agree.
0: The, especially the primary shining host book, they kind of covered everything that needed to be covered to include all the material in the core book for the tabletop in, oh, let's see about 200 pages that are much, much smaller. Cause it's about trade paperback sized. I have to admit that I haven't LARPed at all. So, reading the the game system section, I kind of went cross-eyed and noticed a couple of real obvious system flaws, but other than that, I, I really shouldn't talk about it. But I'm, the flavor stuff is all pretty
1: good. For anyone who's just getting into Changeling, and they have a bunch of players that don't really know the game all that well, I'd honestly recommend picking up Shining Host to have around because that initial question of, oh, what can I play? I find a lot of players don't want to do a ton of homework. And if I hand them C20, their eyes cross. In the Chronicle I'm running right now, I shared C20 with my players. They were all new players. And I said, you can play whatever you want as long as you can vaguely justify it in the setting. So any Galane whatever, the only Kith I made off-limits were the Warpultingers because I didn't want to deal with the Freehold-destroying shenanigans. But I said, beyond that, if you have a good story, play whatever you want. I don't really care. They all played Mainline Kith because they just did not have the time or the will to do that much research to play a game, and I get that. But Shining Host is so compact and so accessible, but it really does capture the flavor of the kith pretty well, a couple of them better than their original write-ups, that I think it's kind of a great resource to hand them to be like, okay, read up on the houses, read up on the kiths. You know, once you have a sense of which one you want for flavor, we can pull out C20 and dig into the systems that would apply, but here's a quick, easy, accessible text. I like it for that purpose.
0: Yeah, and there were a couple of neat little LARP-specific tricks that I thought were really Uh, useful, really useful, especially in the Arts and the Realms, which I think is one of the weaker bits of the book, because a lot of it was hewing a little bit too closely to tabletop, and a lot of the cantrips included the line, requires narration intervention, if you're going to use this power, or something to that effect.
1: Yeah, I noticed that as well. I kind of remember that. From playing changeling we didn't use the realms in the LARP game that i played the st went i am not messing around with all that complexity when it's one storyteller to 20 players that's just not happening and so he wrote versions of the arts that worked a little bit more like disciplines the other thing about shining host and i've heard people complain about this is the bunk system is a little oppressive it's kind of like the first edition bunk system you have to have bunks like pre-prepared on cards and you have to do them and some of the powers are just like oh you did a bunk and it gave you an advantage to the test some of the powers are like okay you're doing a thing you can do as many of these things as you had bunk traits and it's like oh that's brutal like you have to really do a substantial bunk to get anything more than a minimal effect and in a larp setting bunks can be disruptive like if you're trying to do combat or something else it's it's a high bar to juggle especially if you happen to be a new player
0: as somebody who doesn't larp my main question reading the system rules were
1: what the hell is the challenge system Uh, the challenge system, so I mostly played vampire and Shining Host definitely has a more complicated challenge system than, than the base vampire gray book back in the day. I played a little bit with Revise, but I mostly played like the second edition gray book. And so you'll have, you know, seven or eight or however many social traits. Each trait that you have has a description on it. So alluring or likable or charismatic. And you have to pick a trait that goes along with whatever the test you're doing. So you say, oh, this one, I could do charisma for this sovereign test. And then you do rock, paper, scissors against someone. And then if you win, you win. If you lose, you can expend a trait and actually your trait pool lowers over the course of the night to retest. So the idea is the person with more traits will be able to retest more. It was kind of a nightmare. I remember being in testing battles where it's like, okay, well, we're on our seventh retest for this. I'm going to blow willpower and get my traits back. Let's keep going. I mean, that only happened once or twice, but it was an issue That's why in the new BNS system, there are retests, but there is a hard stop on how many retests you can do. There are a couple super special abilities that will let you retest twice, but it's pretty minimal. I think the absolute most you can retest in BNS system, even with like merits and wacky stuff is three times. And those are super rare. I'm blowing all my resources because I really, really care about this action situations, It's not a great system. Like, I like the BNS system. I don't like the second edition core mechanic. I don't think it's worth spending a ton of time on. There aren't that many people still out there that use it. There's one particular org that is still living in it because they, a lot of people have very, very established characters they don't want to give up. But by and large, I feel like most people are moving to BNS, which is more sustainable. I couldn't figure out what was going on reading the description
0: and the play examples of testing and challenges and then blah. but <laughs> moving on to things that i thought were pretty clever they had the uh suggestion when you're running a game to throw in a assistant storyteller they were calling them narrators i think whose sole purpose was to be the the referee for whenever somebody uses uh soothsay power or certain kinds of sovereign powers anything that created predictions or omens or gaze to make sure that these things didn't conflict and mess each other up down the road and that's a really elegant solution to that problem so much so that i kind of want to just get a little notebook and have that be the oracle for the tabletop game because we're on two years now and everybody's having a little bit of trouble
1: remembering them all. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's advice that I think goes well beyond changeling. If you're dealing with any game where there are oracular powers, which are really common in world of darkness, I think it's worth doing that. Now in the BNS system, there isn't a lot of Oracle. Soothsay has a little bit of Oracle in it, but it feels a little bit more like Auspex. I think that is partially to reduce the need for an AST that exists just to manage Oracle, uh, especially in some of the LARP games I've been in. It's hard enough for a main storyteller to just have one generic AST to help them with scale. So the idea of having a narrator that focuses on Oracle is awesome, but it's it's a level of resources that I don't know that all LARPs have. One of the other things
0: that they did with the Epiphanies that I thought was a pretty decent way to go with it was they turned Rapture into just an RP element. They gave some like nod to having rules for it, but the description and the the setup for it was really flavor heavy. And just in case anybody hasn't listened enough to know what Rapture is, Rapture is the epiphany where a changeling inspires their human half rather than some other person and they directly connect to the dreaming themselves. And honestly, I, I'm i really fond of that idea. It works well in the setting, and it makes it something that's kind of special.
1: Yeah, which I really appreciate. Epiphanies are so difficult to manage because I want Epiphanies to be really meaningful RP story dynamic. I, I want them to be part of playing and manipulating the world but they're not written that way and players don't use them that way you know when we've done feeding in my tabletop game my players have generally been like okay what do i need to do to get glamour back and i'm just sitting there like this is an opportunity guys (laughs) like yes you're gonna get glamour back from this but do you want to seek out people that the thing they're likely to do from your inspiration maybe aligns with your goals?" No, you just want to go teach that yoga student? Okay, let's roll inspiration. I mean, (laughs) and from talking to other players, that seems to be the norm. And I like the idea of taking one thing out at least and saying, this is an RP element. I want to get you into the RP for how you get your glamour back. Even if realistically, self-musing is hard to do and not super frequent. I still like that. I have my fingers crossed that Epiphanies will end up being a bit more RP in the BNS system by the time they're done.
0: I've definitely had that problem at our table too, and it's gotten to the point where I've started anticipating when people are going to start needing to feed and recharge, and have started littering plot points all over the place at those moments so that when they encounter that activated plot point they can look back on it and be like oh oh wait that's the guy that i oh but even then that's just a sneaky way of forcing them to play the way i want it's not actually getting them to play the way i want
1: no and i mean you can never get players to play the way you want and that's triply true in a larp i mean a tabletop You at least have an intimate relationship with your players and you can have one-on-one discussions with them if you want to. In a LARP, in most cases, it's a public game. You know, it's you don't really own it because most LARPs are part of orgs and as part of an org, you have to let anyone who walks up play unless they've actually done something worthy of being banned by the organization. And so you just don't have that same relationship. So things have to be a little more standardized. So any of that that can be built into the core system, I feel like is more important in a LARP book. Because golden rule doesn't really apply in most LARP games. Like, there'll be the book plus the little, like, packet of rules that are what that org officially recognizes as their organization golden rules. But you as an individual storyteller running your particular story in your particular city still have to adhere to that collective package, whatever it is. You don't get to just decide you want to do something different unless you're running a troop game. Realistically, most LARP games are not troop games.
0: Yeah, really the only place most Epiphanies are going to come up in a LARP game, at least the way it looks to me, is if you're going to allow Changelings to use Epiphany on each other. And that... that
1: is a uh, storyteller-heavy
0: element there.
1: Yeah, I mean, we recently had some exchange about that in a Facebook group. And in a tabletop setting, my view on that is do whatever feels right for you. There's an argument for allowing it as a general thing. There's an argument for allowing it as a super secret hidden thing. There's an argument for saying, no, we're not doing that. But it just depends on the story you want to tell. In a LARP, and letting you epiphany other players... LARP players are abusive to each other a lot. And in general, maybe not like full-on abusive, but like antagonistic relationships between players drives a lot of LARP action. And in a setting where you know that's the norm, allowing Changeling Epiphany as a baseline thing gets dangerous. Like, I would not want to deal with that dynamic in a troop setting. Or in an org setting, yeah, especially in an org setting, you have like that one asshole who comes in from two states away because they have a ton of money and we just like travel for the shenanigans. And sometimes those players are awesome, but I've heard a lot of horror stories about players basically coming in to kill PCs and it's not their city, they're going to go home and they don't have to deal with the social ramifications of having, you know, dick in the game and a lot of storytellers manage that and try to see it coming and mitigate it. But if you allow PC on PC epiphany, that dynamic gets a lot harder to manage.
0: I know, although when looks meet, I tremble to the bone. The more I leave the door unlatched, the sooner love is gone. For love is but a skein unwound between the dark and dawn. A lonely ghost, the ghost is, that to God shall come. I love skein upon the ground. My body in the tomb shall leap into the light lost in my mother's womb. But were I left to lie alone in an empty bed, The skein so bound us ghost to ghost. When he turned his head, passing on the road that night, Mine must walk when dead. that gets into the second Shining Host book, The Player's Guide, which gives rules for playing Kinane. And Kinane and Shining Host are a little... Honestly, they're a little bit wimpier than they were even in 2nd Edition Tabletop because in Shining Host, Kinane don't come auto-enchanted they can't, by default, interact with chimerical reality. They have a merit they can buy that lets them make enchantment tokens that they can use on themselves, but that still costs a point of glamour, so they're using up the thing that's enchanting them to make them enchantable again, but they won't remember what it's for once the mists roll in. So, Eh? And that's another place where you're going to have player-on-player epiphany going on. And player-on-player enchanting, and player-on-player really
1: imbalanced relationships. That's also one of those things where, you know, how often are you really going to see Kinane players in a LARP setting? It's hard to say. Changeling is already, I would say, the third-tier LARP game. Vampire is the biggest LARP game by a million miles. Werewolf comes in second. And then of the remaining games, Changeling is the one that is social enough to make sense as a LARP. But much less of it is played. I mean, much, much less. Fingers crossed, maybe that'll change with the the new BNS system. But the old Shining host system was not super popular. I know for a long time in One World by Night, as far as I understood it from my friends who played Changeling One World by Night in Bloomington, Indiana, it was the only city with a Changeling venue, like for years. Now, there might be someone out there in Obi-Wan who would correct me, but that is what I had heard from the Bloomington players for quite a while. That's not a lot of representation in a national org, or even a large regional org. So when the population is that small, and it's that kind of tight-knit and everyone knows each other and it's super intense. I don't know how many people are really going to choose to play Canane. I feel like most of the time Canane are going to be, I've got a retainer Z background and I have Canane in my backstory that I can tap and access in XYZ ways. So I'm guessing that's part of why the Kinane write-up in terms of applicability for an actual character is much less developed. Like there are rules in Vampire if you don't take any generation to be a human. But I don't hear people telling stories about the human players. I'm sure there are some out there somewhere, and it's kind of the same dynamic. So, I don't know. I'd love there to be a better place for Kinane, and especially if you could take the Kinane Merit as the other supers. I think it'd be a great spot for venue crossover. But just straight up mortal Kinane, I don't know.
0: I appreciate that they included the Kin in the player's guide kind of on par with the Nunahi and the Shadow Court and the Inanime as like, this is an option. We've given these about that much word count. You should be able to play these, which is honestly better than Changeling does in Tabletop for the Kinane. And they broke a little new ground with the Kinane in that they wrote out some narrative and some rules for what happens when a canane gets promoted to full changeling and that's basically spelled out as this is here for the selkies there might be other uses for it but we wrote it for the selkies but beyond that
1: they're super fragile compared to everything they're going to be around so yeah and i mean i also think they may have framed that around we just we just did this for the selkies but i also think in a big larp context having that system having that path even if you have to torque the narrative a little to make it happen makes starting as a canane feel like a valid option because like in a larp where it's like i'm going to get however much monthly experience but i'm a Kin, i can't really do anything with it i eventually want to reach a point where I'm on par with this story and have a place in it, but I'd also kind of like to play just kin for a while. Cause it's a fun space to explore that gives you a pathway into that ascendance without being like, well, if I want to do kin, I'm going to have to trash this character in three months and do something different. If I want to advance, that makes it a lot less compelling. So I think in a LARP league context, that system in general makes a lot of sense and creating space for that. in the narrative makes a lot of sense
0: back when the world was still new. Two young lovers spoke after making love for the first time, their hearts still quivering with the discovery of joy and passion. Without realizing it, they wove their words into a new dream that arose in Arcadia, the personification of that juvenile fervor for life and its pleasures. Her name was Lady Fiona, so beautiful both outside and inside that she loved every living being and was loved by them in return. Frequently, she loved them carnally, but in her heart, she had not felt true love, only the tenderness she offered to everyone, even the most hideous redcap. She was never without lovers, and she always tended to them lovingly until she saw fit to end their relationships. She always tried for them to remember the good times over the bad ones, tried for them to smile instead of crying, and very seldom failed. Many were shocked that she shared her bed with both commoners and nobles. Fiona never made distinctions among them, as she thought there should be no limitations for her unions. Everyone was worthy in her eyes, regardless of their nature and origins. And so, the she would make friends among the living dead and spirits, among mages and werewolves. From the latter, she would get especially close to the tribe called Fianna, which would eventually be her doom. Two other things that jumped out of me from the, the first Shining House book, where that House Liam and House Fiona are both written in slightly different ways than they are in 2nd edition or C20. And honestly, Fiona comes across a lot more sympathetic than they have in other writings, because, especially their flaw, their House flaw is that they are too accepting Rather than being just super passionate, it's that they have a passion for things that they shouldn't like. So, outcasts and unacceptable types. Whether that's the bodice ripper noblewoman who falls for a traveling person, or that's, whether that's a noble that falls for a commoner, or just somebody who is super obsessed with humans and that is really inappropriate for a she that makes them a lot more sympathetic than they are in other versions of Changeling.
1: Yeah, it does. The other thing I like about that, and, you know, I always look at the she as a paragon of privilege and inspecting privilege is the idea of loving the unacceptable thing. It can only be viewed as unacceptable from a place of I'm better than because if you're on an equal footing, it's not unacceptable. And so that's a common theme in a bunch of narrative about privilege. And it wasn't until I read this write-up that I realized that had kind of been missing from the she. Like, that wasn't part of the way privilege was inspected in their text. And Fiona's a really good place to inspect that. And the kind of fetishization of not privileged. I agree. It. Even even through that lens, it makes them more sympathetic than they were, and it makes them more sympathetic than a lot of the other houses. But just in general, I think it fills in an aspect of privilege inspection that was missing and important. So I like it. I'm likely to use it in my tabletop if Fiona, she show up. And then with House Liam, their merit is a little bit less
0: game-breakingly awesome than it is in tabletop but they're still pretty good they're kind of on the same note as fianna they are much more fascinated with humanity than they were in other versions and their boon is that they find it easier to enchant humans than the other she do and a lot like fiona this is one of those things where you can look at it and be like oh they're more into humans that's a good thing or you can look at it like oh they're better at manipulating humans that's not so great
1: yeah it's an interesting take on them and the thing that really stood out to me not just about liam but kind of about all of the house write-ups and the kith write-ups they are short. I mean, they are very brief. They have to be for the size of the book. You have the major houses and then they have way more than the basic kith, which again, in a book this small is a pretty big task, but they make just brutally efficient use of that word count. Even though each house only gets a paragraph or so, it is jam-packed with little framing things that make them more interesting. That Add to the houses meaningfully, even over in some cases the chapters that they get in the house books. And I really appreciate that. The house that kind of stood out to me is House Dougal. And it's not necessarily the most groundbreaking write up, but the thing that I find kind of interesting about it is even though they didn't have a lot of text to work with, they still blow like the first three or four lines talking about that opening myth about Lord Dougal conquering iron and turning it into steel and making it safe for Fae to use. And that's kind of an interesting choice to go that way when all you have is a paragraph. It still feels vital and they still invoke them really liking engineering. They don't go just the we make armor and swords and we're smith's route either and they kind of capture a lot of different things in a very simple piece of text and it's all of these write-ups feel that way to me it's a big part of why i appreciate this book is just how efficient it is in the
0: thick of this raucous, festive throng Abraham Okimasi stood, Cree gentleman from Imanapiti Pita, Manitoba, caribou hunter without equal, grand champion of the world, unable to move, barely remembering to breathe, because of the stars exploding in his own eyes. All he could see was bits and pieces of the scene before him, interspersed with the vision of his lead dog, Tiger Tiger, panting out his puffs and clouds of vapor, striving for the finish line. And before the hunter could collect himself, a third darkness came upon him, the roaring in his ears gigantic, and at the far end of this new darkness appeared, again, a small white flame flickering on the platform. Floating, whispering sibilance in hush, blooming into presence, the white flame began to hum. A note so pure human ears could never have been meant to hear it. Then the presence began to take on shape. The caribou hunter could just discern a flowing cape seemingly made from fold after fold of white, luxuriant fur, swelling like the surface of a lake. The caribou hunter thought he saw a crown made of the same white fur hovering above this cape, and the crown sparkled and flashed with what could have been a constellation. Then Abraham Okimasis saw the white sash, satin, draped across the upper body of a young woman. So fair, her skin looked chiseled out of arctic frost. Her teeth, pearls of ice. Lips, streaks of blood. Eyes, white flames, in a pitch-black night. Eyes appeared to see nothing but the caribou hunter alone. And then the caribou hunter and the woman in white fur began floating toward each other, as if powerless to stay apart. And as the two moved closer, Abraham Okimasis could decipher the message printed across her sash, syllable by syllable, letter by letter. The Fur Queen, 1951 So that was mostly the Shining Host core book. Then there's a second book, the Shining Host Player's Guide, that goes into the Nunahi, the inanime, and the kin, and also develops the Shadow Court a little bit. I kind of feel like everything that they did in in the in the core Shining Host book, where having a limited amount of word count really helped them and forced them to be efficient didn't happen in this book.
1: <laughs> I can't say there's nothing in the Player's Guide I like. There are a couple things that I do like in the Player's Guide, but there are whole sections of the Player's Guide where I'm just very confused by what I read. I mean, the first section in the Player's Guide is the Nunyahi. And it's... I have mixed feelings about the Nunyahi section, which is typical. I have mixed feelings about the Nunyahi write-up in all the books where they appear. In some respects, they're honestly better. The individual family write-ups are probably better than any of the other books I've read them in. But the general Nunihi backstory is kind of incoherent. Like I read through it, and I didn't understand a lot of what I was reading. They talk about this long history of the Nunyhi sort of interacting with their human dreamers and becoming changelings way before the shattering and I don't entirely understand why and it really doesn't fit with the fact that almost all of the Nunyhi families don't live around people even most of them are described as not particularly living in their tribes they live out in the wilderness surrounding reservations surrounding tribal populations and but they have a much longer history of being changelings and living in humans and having this direct relationship with the indigenous peoples and so why like what and the whole relationship with gathering their medicine from the land is Described as something that's always been there. It wasn't their coping mechanism. Truth be told, I like that a little bit more. But then they can also muse. They can also get inspiration. They kept that from the Changeling Tabletop Player's Guide era. And so they have a more substantial relationship with humans pre-shattering than the Cathane do, presumably. But they get their medicine from the land, but I just, I don't really know. They keep the whole story about them being locked off from the higher hunting ground, but they make it so they can go into the near dreaming. They just can't go into the far or deep dreaming. That's where, you know, that severing happens and they describe it as a trauma on their soul. And I'm like, okay, so we're really stepping up the description here, but we've gotten rid of the system basically. Cause seriously, how many LARPs are going into the deep dreaming? Like that's not really, we're gonna, we're gonna go past the valley of the mist with LARP players. I don't Canada know. it any- outside of the special effects budget. Yeah, that's a, it's not just outside of the special effects budget, but like out of game metagaming, don't let the players know shit that they don't know. That's a thing. Like you do not have the kind of, tight-knit intimate story multiple collaborative story development dynamic that you have in tabletop if the character doesn't know it you really shouldn't let the player know in a larp setting you're not going to send those players past the valley of the mists and deal with that whole remembrance mess that is just not happening
0: well that many <laughs> he don't have remembrance in shining host they oh, can't God, take it it's
1: just so weird like i don't even understand that Like they have this whole sidebar
0: about how the umbra's hard to use and you should avoid using it, but they still give it to the Nunahi. Like they were chafing under the structure they had to work with, but they couldn't quite bring themselves to throw it away and just be like, Yeah, no, they're changelings. They get the dreaming.
1: Well, the other thing is there's all there's a much more involved write-up there in terms of the lower world and how they get to the lower world. And that exists in tabletop, but Honestly, it was never written up all that well. It's much more clearly written out in the Shining Host Player's Guide, which I kind of appreciate. But at the same time, I'm like, so we're creating these full-on pathways. We're going to give them the art that lets them deal with these worlds and let them teach it to the Cathayne, even though it explicitly says the Cathayne won't know what the hell to do with it because they only know about the Dreaming, but you can teach it to them. What? Um, the Cathane can't just take it on their own, but if they find a Nunuhi instructor about spirit, ways, art, sure, go to town. I was very mm-hmm. confused. Yeah, so the like, whole the whole <laughs> Nunuhi section
0: is just like this whiplash of going from, oh, that's a good idea, to what are you doing?
1: Yeah. And then back to, oh, that's a good idea. Now, with all of that venting aside, I do have to say, once I got into the family write-ups, families being the nunyhi Kith, those are way better than any of the other family write-ups I've seen. They're not perfect, but like the Water Babies, as an example, they there's like a word or two in the Player's Guide write-up on the Water Babies kind of acknowledging that they get accused of drowning people, but they only drown people that, you know, need drowning. Even though it's much less word count, in the Shining Host Player's Guide, they devote a solid two to three sentences about this is how the other Nunyahi see them. This is how they are known. They are pushed to the outskirts, but it's all kind of a lie. Here's what's really going on. They like take that time to frame that relationship and what that looks like. And I really appreciated that because one of the things that's frustrated me about the Nunyahi is they're mostly presented as a unified front against the Cathane and the colonizing forces. And realistically, that's just not how multicultural alliances work. And the Nonihi nations represent a very multicultural alliance. And there was a lot more of that present. The thought crafters actually get a write-up that frames them in terms of mythology. The original thought crafter write-up is like, they exist. To rediscover the higher hunting ground. Oh, and innovation, we guess. Oh, and Manabus. Go. And I'm like, okay, this reads like a political organization, not a kith. Their write-up in the Shining Host Player's Guide presents them as puzzle solvers, which is related to Nanabuju, or Manabus is one of his easier to pronounce but less common names. It talks about the myth of... You know, Mana Bus bringing fire to people, which I always wanted to get mentioned in the other write-ups because that's so rich and connects to the Solomon story. And that's there, even though it's a tiny write-up, because all the write-ups are tiny and these books are small, they somehow packed all that in. The rock giants invoke the noble savage dynamic. You know, it even calls out people who have these stereotypes about the Nunyahi are shocked when they meet rock giants because they don't meet the stereotype. And I was like, oh my God, I love this framing. There are multiple places in the write-up where they say, look, do not rely on this. Do your own research or you're going to present a stereotype. We cannot do what needs to be done here with this word count. I wish they had cleaned up the inconsistencies in the overall, this is what the Nunyehi are backstory section. It's incoherent in a lot of ways. But man, like, I, I think if I had players that wanted to play the Nunahi not even for the limited homework reason from the Kith and the Shining Host, I think I'd probably just give them those flat write-ups, because they're the best ones I've seen. Yeah, the other
0: thing I really appreciated about the Nunahi in the Shining Host Players Guide is they didn't do a lot with it, but they opened the door with it. There's, a, I think it was a sidebar where they talked about the Nunahi resurgence and how it took place at the same time as the resurgence generally in Concordia. And, well, isn't that just interesting? Like, if they had a resurgence, that puts them on a closer to equal footing with the other changelings. And even just leaving that there hanging is a better way forward than C20 took with them.
1: Well, and honestly, that text about the resurgence specifically talks about, it invokes very specific cultural phenomenon. It invokes rediscovering traditional dance and rediscovering traditional crafts and going back and researching. And a lot of things that were happening in the 60s with indigenous peoples that had been forcibly relocated and put through assimilation policies that then started pushing back. It feels more authentic. And it completely avoids the the Nunyuhi are tragic because the indigenous people ignore their traditional ways, which is an invocation in both the Changeling Player's Guide and in C20. And it makes me cringe in both of those books. And as much as a lot of the moving pieces don't fit together as much as I'd like in the Shining Host Player's Guide, it completely 180s that. That alone makes it a better write-up for me in uh, non-trivial ways the conflict
0: i've seen my native american friends express isn't oh no we've forgotten our past it's how about you just leave us alone that's all we want yeah i mean
1: pretty much and i i don't know there are still little things like in the thought crafter write up the whole write up talks about them as innovators and tricksters and things that tie them closely to humanity and how they built examples of their culture and presented new and innovative ways to get it out into the world. And then it says, they live on the outskirts, they avoid actual settled areas. And I'm like, you were so close. You could literally strike that one sentence. And this write-up isn't perfect, but it's solid game level expected, as good as any other write-up gets. And you had to put that sentence in there that doesn't make any sense, but it's just like, we have to remind everyone Noble, Savage, and all these write-ups. So like, I don't want to paint a picture like the write-up in the Shining Host Player's Guide is without flaw, but it is definitely with fewer flaws than the other ones I've seen. And it's a little bit easier to just omit the 10% that needs to be omitted and have kind of a working framework left.
0: And then another group they opened up in the player's guide for people to play in Shining Host are the Ananime. As much of an improvement as the Nunahy family descriptions are on the second edition and even 20th edition descriptions. The ananime are weird. The like I get what they were trying to do, they filled in some like social structure for the different empires' information, which isn't, like, a intellectually bankrupt idea. Like, I I think that would actually be super helpful. But they did it in such an odd way. The glooms are supposed to be the smallest, youngest examples of the things that live in their empire, and the bigger things don't interact with the autumn world at all. So how are they changelings? I don't know. And because of that structure in their society, like the Gloams exist just to fulfill the wishes of the things that aren't changelings, which is why they're basically a military force. And the Kubera are all feudal for some reason. And the Ondines have been exiled from the realm they're from because their anchors don't lead there or something? It's all very, it's a very odd, like, injection of flavor and incomplete thoughts that are supposed to be story hooks, I think. But they don't line up with anything in secret way. So you can't really be like, oh, that was interesting. I'm going to go read about that in this book. That gets way more words. Because it doesn't.
1: Yeah, there were other things. Like, there's this line about the terrible slaughter known as the Making War. And they use that word slaughter. And then you go down a little farther. It's like two pages away. And they talk about basically the anime as sheets. And they bring up the anchor's life, never destroy an anchor. And they describe it as if you destroy another anime's anchor, then you risk becoming a Dontain and your anchor will shrivel and die as well. And I think there is actually something in the secret way that lines up with that line of their codex, and that's fine. But I feel like the writer's definition of slaughter is different from my definition of slaughter. Uh, destroying a husk isn't a big deal. Husks are disposable they're they are like maybe they're not supposed to be but they are and it's like okay if we aren't if we aren't destroying anchors there's no real slaughter here like what is the intended framework of this war because i always envisioned that war as a fight over whether or not humans would be allowed to continue would be allowed to continue to expand the power that they had based on what the Solomons gave them and the fight over crofting or not crofting and territory. But like slaughter among the inanime is not a thing because of that Dantain hook, even though there isn't a, really a system for it. Right. Yeah, and that gets like, to
0: <laughs> like, they added this teeny bit to the the backstory about the Solomons and the, the making war that fills it out in a really weird way. That's kind of interesting that apart from giving humanity fire in order to help them learn to manipulate their environment, they also gave them fire to give them something to throw their, their bad impulses into the corrupting influence of persisting too long, basically. And that when the, the making war was in full swing, so many, so many fire elementals were thrown into Solemnness that, that part of their gift somehow broke and humanity only kept the ability to, to weave and they didn't keep the ability to discard things that weren't serving well. That's a really interesting sort of collection of ideas to throw into the story because it makes, it makes the whole thing a lot more tragic.
1: (laughs) It does, and I mean, we're, we're ragging on this write up pretty harshly. There are some interesting ideas in here. The problem is they had the same limited word count to work with, and with the other sections that really kinda shine, they took what already existed, and they just distilled it down to its absolute most important parts. In the inanime section, they kinda did that, and then they added to it. But it's like anything they added, there were only a few words that they had to add things. And so they all kind of feel like incomplete thoughts.
0: They also added a couple of little bits about the phyla that created a hierarchy of who's good at making a husk and who isn't. And they didn't really build any system around it, but even just putting that narrative in there... Seems like really
1: bad design. Yeah, they did some other system stuff. Like, and I noticed a couple merits like this throughout the book where I'm like, that's not really a merit. That's just a, I bought five levels of a background. But there's a merit for I've got a great husk. It doesn't matter if it's only one dot. It's a great husk. Yeah, and it was I'm like, like a two-point merit. I'm like, okay, so find me in an anime player that's not going to take one dot of husk and that merit because why would i pay for five dots of husk like that's just weird design oh the other really
0: interesting thing they did was they finally put some framing around the heart question and it's totally the little mermaid undine uh, pinocchio thing i want to be a real little boy which isn't my favorite thing to fill that hole in with but they did put it there <laughs> and yeah we were talking about this before we started recording and I, I think victor's right about this the like it gives you a reason to have an anime in the game that's that's kind of what it does
1: yeah they there's a there's some other random word count in here that's about the relationship that the an anime have with the caffeine. And there's a little bit of that in Secret Way. I I don't want to mean to imply that it's brand new, but I would say it takes up a larger percentage. And I felt like all of that was, okay, if we're going to build an anime out for a LARP, we need to actually imagine what one would be like in a LARP and have it make some kind of sense. And that's totally necessary. The hard question stuff kind of does fall into that territory. My problem with it is it's all wrapped up in what is emotion and what does feeling mean? and What does it mean to be human? It makes sense for the mannequins. Like, full stop. I'm fine with it for the mannequins. It kind of, sort of, kind of, a little bit makes sense for the Crofted. And especially Ondines, because of all the Little Mermaid myths. I don't get it for Gladelings. Like, why would Gladelings care? At all. It just... I'm a Gladeling. I make a body sometimes, because I need to interact with things. Because they've wormed their way into my territory. But realistically, why else does a gladling even bother making a husk? There's not a lot of reason for it. And so why do they care about the heart question at all? And I I wish the heart question was presented on those terms, that the heart question was almost at the center of the vestigial parts of the making war that are still going on, because that would be interesting. That would be a conflict that you could dig into. But that's really not how it's presented. The entire thing comes off as kind of a vestigial, like,
0: offshoot of, well, how do we graft this onto the cathane?
1: Yeah, a little bit. They also do a weird thing where they basically say the Inanime can learn the regular cathane realms, but why would they? And not like the Mannequins can, like the Inanime can. And I'm like, what? Because they they basically kept the Sliver and Inanime realms from Secret Way, and then I was reading them pretty quickly because I didn't want to get too far into detailed crunch on side groups for this episode, but I, that stood out to me. And I'm like, why are you opening that door? I get why mannequins would want those realms and need them, but why would anyone else touch them? It's just kind of strange.
0: They added a, a flaw to the mannequins that I don't remember reading in any other version of them where they have this like, this burning, core that is just Pinocchio, where if anybody or anything around them makes them think that this thing or this person has a clue about how to make themselves into a real little boy or a real little girl, they become fascinated by it and they have to make a a will save
1: to avoid being suckered by it. I don't remember them having that. I don't remember that either. The The boons and banes for the mannequins were just kind of missed in secret way. Like they're in there in the text, but they aren't in there in their two-page spread. It's weird. That was fixed in C20, but their boon is all wrapped up in being able to learn regular arts. And I don't remember what their bane was, but I don't think it was that. That also gets to... A dynamic with the mannequins that I really wish they'd fixed for LARP. The inanime are all described as harvesting glamour the same way the he do from the land. That does not make any sense for mannequins. Like you can do some narrative leaping and I've talked about this with Simon and it's like, okay, well plastic comes from oil and you know, you have this amazing headcanon about mannequins being kind of a colony like dynamic like all of the the dolls that are made from the wood from a given forest it's actually a unified entity or all the plastic that came from a particular oil deposit and that's interesting it still kind of leaves you like i'm a mannequin in new york city it's not like i'm anywhere near that oil deposit where am i getting my damn glamour like the harvesting mechanisms for the anime just don't make any sense for the mannequins they don't have access to them what the heck? And what I've been doing with mannequins, I don't have any mannequin players, but I have a mannequin NPC, is switching the epiphany around and making it a very unique form of musing ravaging. Because I thought back on doll stories, and doll stories all focus on, they don't all focus on, but a lot of them focus on dolls wanting to have a human feel away about them. Whether it's the horror stories about dolls, and there's a long tradition of that in Japan, as well as in parts of Europe where they want to be feared, they want to incite terror, or the Pinocchio-Velveteen-Rabbit model, where they want to be loved. They want someone to love them enough that they become real. And that's a whole genre of stories. And so I've done an epiphany that is about the doll making humans love them. And having the emotion projected onto them, they harvest that as glamour. It can be a positive emotion like love the situation where it came up in my campaign. I had a character that had, they put an abusive parent in their backstory and I had a a doll imitate them and insert themselves where that character should be in a relationship with that character's abusive family member. And that was a thing we talked about and I made it clear people could X-card that game. I made my players very uncomfortable, but none of them X-carded. It's, it's really compelling space and in a LARP setting, opening up that epiphany, and especially in cross-genre games, that could be really meaty LARP content where like I need to make you feel a way about me and once you do I gain power from you feeling a way about me. I can just see that playing out. And I would love to see that in a LARP write-up for the mannequins. I'd love to see it in any write-up for the mannequins. Because again, harvesting from the earth for a plastic doll just doesn't make any sense. I
0: looked it up on the wiki and they, um, they said that there aren't any birthrights or frailties for mannequins in the secret way but based on the other parts of the book, you might extrapolate that their frailty is not being able to learn the fifth level of any art or meat
1: realm. Oh, I do remember that. I think that is actually called out more explicitly in C20. Question answered. I grabbed some lunch in a Bistro-type place, a chicken sandwich roasted with rosemary. I'm chowing down, and suddenly, I started to think about things, and for a few moments, the sound mist cleared. Lisa was standing at the biggest bonfire, wearing a white gown I'd never seen before, and that gorgeous hair, bound only with a wreath of greenery. The Cathane were chanting something around her, almost singing reaching out to touch the hem of her dress and her hair like she was something holy or wonderful. She was smiling, but it was the smile of someone who's tripping. are not quite with us, you know. Phil stood back behind her with a masked she wearing green armor and two slew on, black. Hail, daughter of summer, Phil calls. Behold the bright path, the way of all things. Walk it now. Return to us the long summer of our birthright. And be forever a shining beacon to guide us home. Lisa's smile turned radiant, damn near holy. A door opened into the dreaming, but it wasn't a trot I've ever seen. The place beyond was dark. The path, it might have been a silver path, but there's a coldness to the light, flat and pale. She stepped forward, but something made her pause. And in that pause, her face lost the radiance. I don't know if we saw each other, but suddenly she was out of her trance and awake and scared. She managed only to lean back before Phil, the she and the slua surged forward and pushed her into that dark portal. The scream was cut off by the portal closing and the crowd going crazy. Then, the mist slammed the door just as quick.
0: And Then we have the Shadow Court, who... I didn't really have super strong feelings about that write-up. They are kind of written up as being another medieval holdover. They're the court that is interested in turning the wheel, which is probably where Finance Studios picked up and went, okay, well, we'll just keep moving that one along and make them into the court that did turn the wheel, and now they're in power, ha, 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 so they don't care to turn the wheel anymore but there were a few little snippets of their origin as the court that was interested in death as a renewal. And there's a bit of a story about them shoving changelings down their bright road into the dreaming, which in the past allowed true fae to be unmade and to renew themselves that way. But no changeling comes back from that. And wonder what that means kind of a thing.
1: They're also presented in a modern context as weirdly progressive. Like there's this whole thing about, and then humans discovered anarchy and democracy and, 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 and it, it's like it quadrupled down on the unseely as monsters plus progressives which I'm never quite going to know what to do with. Like, with the Thelaine, I can get into the fear of change, fear of progressivism that the establishment has, and imagine a group trying to cultivate that when we go all the way into Thelaine-Femorian territory. I do not get the intersection at the unseelie-Cathane level. And there's a lot of text in the Shadow Court write-up in the Shining Host Player's Guide that sort of treats the Shadow Court as just, the Unseelie, but politically organized. They're often self-referential as Unseelie, as Unseelie like us, you know, we Unseelie Fae. And so I didn't quite know what to make of that. It, you know, the one thing I will say that's kind of a plus is it was very accessible. You know, when I read the Shadow Court write-up, I went, okay, I see how this would play out in a LARP. I see the role that these Fae would take It's a less antagonistic role than the Shadow Court in BNS seems to be. But I get it. And I get why that's necessary. But it was still a little bit, I'm not quite sure what I'm looking at. Yeah, and they were a little bit of a mess, too, because they shoveled in the she political
0: impulses from, I think it's the Tabletop Shining Host book, but I'm not sure on that. Like, contextually, they make sense to be thrown in with the Shadow Court stuff because the ones they brought sideways into the larp setting were the ones that were specifically about things the shadow court would be interested in, like turning the wheel, like getting some measure of revenge on the Sealy for dominating politics since the shattering at the same time when you're you've got limited word count and you're aiming for making things not simple so much as bite-sized so that you can fit it into a larp, adding the political impulses is a very Counterintuitive choice to me.
1: (laughs) I don't remember the political impulses showing up in the main Shining Host book. And so, thinking about the LARP as mostly a self contained package, you know, the LARP books in general don't go as far into canon in large part because, you know, when you tabletop, you've got four or five, maybe six or seven people in a really huge game, and those are the people you get together with and most of your experience is their previous experience plus what's in the books. There's a much bigger burden on the book. When you walk into a LARP, you have kind of a rotating set of players, 10, 15, 20 people. You know, you learn from experience. You learn from actually acting out what's going on. I learned far more about Vampire from LARPs, honestly, in a lot of cases than from the books, because there were just players that knew, and they seeded all of that into the air, So the LARP books generally are kind of self-contained. Plus, if you open it up, it needs to be that little bit of, I can absorb this, and that'll get me started in the LARP, and then I'll learn the rest organically. And so having the political impulses, while within the scope of the LARP product, not having the thing they're a reflection of, I, I feel like maybe the person that chose to put that in the player's guide forgot that the thing that they were modeling it off of didn't exist in a LARP context yet.
0: The other really weird thing they threw in there for the Shadow Court was they have a specific epiphany that only they get that is, I guess, supposed to hint at their their origin as the autumn-winter courts, if that was a part of their planning document, but definitely as monsters. They have an epiphany that gives them a full glamour recharge from killing someone through fear, which is... Interesting. I, I don't know what to do with
1: that. (laughs) That's, I mean, again, like, I get it, the Shadow Court's supposed to be super dark seas, but then you threw in that whole thing about democracy and tearing down, you know, oppressive power structures and a lot of the text in the Shadow Court write-up is legit critique of the Sealy hegemony. And so having all of that very legit critique that highlights the Sealy as not the good guys, guys, world of darkness, not the good guys, and then doing a power that is just so clearly, this is a power a bad guy would have. Like, I don't get that. To be fair, that this is not a LARP issue. Changeling does that shit all the time. And I don't really understand it. Like, either make everyone the bad guy and the good guy simultaneously. Or if you're going to write up bad guys, like, commit at least a little bit. Like, you can give them a little bit of, like, I'm the antagonist, but maybe I have a point. But there's a difference between a little bit of that and making them the dreaming archetype of some things that are noble and we want to invest in, no, really, democracy's a good thing. Like,
0: (laughs) yeah, no, they, they, the, the Shadow Court here, like, went way, way past kuvira in legend of korra and just straight into yeah we're probably just talking a good game we're not actually good
1: also just to throw out there for anyone who's read this book ignore the propaganda simon and i are not secretly two halves of a single entity and we are not members of the shadow court i'm just gonna leave that out there for anyone who's read the book good luck yeah, anyone anyone who's heard
0: us laugh knows that we can't be a slua.
1: <laughs> no, we cannot be a slua. There's a, there is a canon character in the Shadow Court section named Simon Victor. <laughs> and we both kind of lost it when we came across them. I say we Simon came across this character and told me about it and I went, "What?" <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that
0: was that was a moment. That was <laughs> fate got in here somewhere.
1: It was weird. It knew we were coming. (laughs) If we shadows have offended, think but this, and all is mended, that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear, and this weak and idle theme, no more yielding but a dream. Gentles, do not reprehend. If you pardon, we will mend, and as I am an honest Puck, if we have unearned luck, now to scape the serpent's tongue, we will make amends ere long, else the Puck a liar call. So good night unto you all, give me your hands if we be friends, and Robin shall restore amends." So that's kind of our crash course through the old Changeling LARP book. There's some weird stuff. There's some really compelling, useful information, much like every other Changeling book we've talked about. On the whole, I would recommend picking these books up. Even for all of our critique of uh, the Player's Guide, just for the family write-ups of the Nunyahi alone, I think the book is worth owning. And the main Shining Host book is definitely worth owning just to have a really accessible starting text for new players and let them know don't worry about crunch we can get into tabletop later it's it's kind of a good thing to have we hope that you pick up the books that you find some of the hooks that you want to use maybe even in your tabletop games the books serve as a really good foundation for where bns might be going and where some of their ideas might have come from and so it's just good to know where we've come from to see where we're going and hopefully larp and changeling are going to see a pretty big resurgence so thank you very much for listening this has been walking away from arcadia with victor kinzer and simon Ike and we hope you join us for our next conversation
0: in this conversation were from Crazy Jane and Jack the Journeyman by William Butler Yeats Interlude to Lady Fiona's Curse by Rocio Vega Kiss of the Fur Queen by Thompson Highway The Shining Host by Mind's Eye Theater and A Midsummer Night's Dream by William Shakespeare The music in this episode was Traveling by Madeline You, Yourself, and the Main Character by Komiku Staring at the void between me and the wall by Montplaisir, at the edge of dawn by Parvis Decree, and LSD by Montplaisir.